This week on a lively experiment, a female faction of the Democratic Party splits from the main committee. We'll tell you why. And the impeachment hearings conclude after a busy week. So what's next? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, political strategist Lisa Pelosi, Bill Bartholomew, host and producer of the Bartholomew Town podcast, and former U.S. Congressman Bob Wagan. Welcome to this week's Lively. It's good to have you with us. It was a raucous gathering at Monday night's Democratic State Committee meeting, which saw a group of women break off from the main committee. The newly christened Rhode Island Democratic Party's Women's Caucus was upset by rules preventing them from endorsing candidates, spending money they've raised, or making uh, statements without the chairman's approval. Uh, Bob, I know you've probably been to a few of these meetings. It seems like a case of the old guard meets the new guard, right? It is, uh, and it's not unusual to have uh, uh, new groups of people come forward and try to assert their position, and I, I give the women credit. Uh, I think they should be recognized. I think it's important to be a diverse uh, group, uh, the Democratic Party. They should be doing this. I'm a little disappointed with the way some of this was handled, but. Um, it's not unusual. The Democratic Party has, it's, throughout its entire history, has always been raucous and people arguing about different kinds of things like this. Um, I was a little surprised by that they had already established themselves outside of the framework of the Democratic Party. Um, but uh, I welcome, I think the Democratic Party should welcome them in, uh, with open arms. They should allow them to endorse candidates. I think they should allow them to use their money. Uh, and the Democratic Party would be better as a result of that. Um, what about the argument about central message, same messaging, or do you think that's a kind of a just a, a more of a distinction than a than a difference? This kind of things that happen for forever. Uh, the centralization uh, of the party is where everybody comes to the speaker, and the speaker becomes a very controlling and uh, leading the entire party. Many people like it like that because you can go to one person and get an answer and get a, a response and get action uh, done. Uh, decentralization is what this is all about, giving smaller groups power and authority to do certain kinds of things to make the party more diverse. That's what the Democratic Party should be all about. And I, I, I endorse them. I, th I think what they're doing is good. Well, I mean, again, yes, old guard versus new guard. Process seems to be in question from both sides of this issue and speaking with people who would describe the meeting as chaotic but also productive and people would describe it as chaotic and also kind of an indication as to where the party may be going in the future. The consistency of messaging has come up more than any other topic as far as, I guess, the old guard's perspective on this. If there's going to be a D on the letterhead, regardless of which caucus you know, puts a piece out, it should be consistent in terms of messaging. Um, but obviously, the women's caucus should have a voice, as should every element of the party. If you're going to have a big tent, you have to embrace everyone. It's all kumbaya with the Republicans, right? Well, <laughs> I can tell you, I was a little bemused to see this happening this week from the party because, you know, there's always that thought that the Republican Party is not a broad, welcoming party. And to have the Democrat Party appear to be not as strong for women, you know, as we saw here. But it really made me kind of step back and think about the whole party structure. So when you're going for an endorsement, 
and, and wanting the organization of the party behind you, probably the higher level positions in the state, if you're a general officer or going for a congressional seat, you want the party endorsement behind you. But for more of the local, these caucus endorsements are probably going to be very strong to get the word out about these are the candidates who, who to, to support. So I was just sitting back and kind of enjoying the back and forth um, of the Democrat Party and seeing them. I don't think it was a good week for them. One of the things that also happens now, more so in the last 20 years than before, and that is money. Uh, for a local candidate or for a statewide candidate, the endorsement has meant less and less and less because you can raise your own money and run as a candidate and still win without the party endorsement. Um, the, social the, media helps a lot with that. Social media helps enormously, uh, but also just the, the availability of, of free press out there where before it used to be controlled by the party. The party would raise the money, put out the lawn signs and do all that kind of thing. That doesn't happen anymore. Right. What happens now is you have to raise it. Bill would have to raise that money, to, uh, and if he can or she can, they become the candidate. I, twice, three, four times I was not endorsed by the party. Still won the Democratic Party primary because I raised my own money and got my message out there. So there's many people that you can point to that. Back when we were using pen and quill. Was that pen and quill, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you think about Representative Moira Jane Walsh, you know, versus Michael Earnhardt, who was a Trump voting yeah. D. That is kind of really put him over the edge. Right? Yeah, and I think that's where, if you want to put a specific incident as to where we are today in kind of defining the Democratic Party, to me, that situation is ultimately maybe the beginning of the modern Rhode Island Democratic Party, the hyper-modern. And, you know, it's interesting because it's almost like a Democratic Party endorsement is a negative thing for certain progressive candidates because now they get to be a rabble-rouser and push back on a fairly conservative Democratic Party here in Rhode Island. Well, you know, this again showed the split in the Democratic Party. And then when you saw how members of the General Assembly, who are members of the party, how they voted, it was the progressives versus the traditional Democrats. So it's really coming off as, you know, and of course we didn't um, talk about what came out um, in the paper today, we're taping on Friday, about Steve Alves, his supposed comment that he said about women and calling, the, you know, alluding to pigs for that type of comment. That does not help recruit women wanting to be part of the traditional Democrat party when you have such older men dominating how the party and goes. And that wouldn't have been caught and put up 15 years ago because now it's on Twitter and everybody sees it. I wonder, you know, so Matt Brown is, is, has been kind of uh, coalescing this progressive flank, but it's interesting to me because they're trying to take out some people who, to me, maybe just from where I sit, don't seem all that non-progressive, but they're even further to the left. And I, w I wonder what that means. Look, the Democrats are not about to give up their majority anytime soon. But as you see that, you see that as a positive with the, with the uh, discussion, or do you think it's going too far to the left? I think that's a positive. Whenever you're challenged, whenever you have to defend where you are, that makes you stronger and the party stronger. And so that if you have people that are trying to undermine your position, it's healthy, it's good to be able to debate and argue and eventually hopefully win your position. And if you're out of sync, if you're out of touch with the way the party is, and more importantly about the people within the party, the, the, the voters, the people of Rhode Island, if you're out of sync with them, then the Young Turks, the new group that's coming in, will be able to identify the things that are important to the, the constituents and, and move forward. Uh, it's like exercise. When you get fat and lazy, 
exercise is what helps you get stronger and better. And this is like exercise. And I bet you played off of that non-endorsement because a lot of people used to say, you know, back when the journal's endorsement meant a lot, a lot of people would say anybody but the person who the journal endorses. They kind of play off that. Sometimes they'd endorse Republicans, sometimes Democrats, and back and forth. But you can use that kind of as the underdog, right? You, you can. Hey, and, the party, I'm not... I'm not with the man. I'm going to be doing my own thing. As long as you can get out that message to the public, and social media really helps you do that now, that I'm the underdog, I'm the unendorsed uh, candidate, I'm the one who's fighting for you, I'm for change. That resonates very well with voters. What opportunity do the Republicans have if there's a little bit of infighting? You know, Susie Yankee, the new, new chairwoman, has said her goal, as it should have been all these years, General Assembly seats. We need to get more voice up there. Yeah, and I think that's a, exactly the focus that you, we need to have because I've always believed in that kind of farm team that you need to start at the local level, you know, get into office at the local level, and that prepares you to run for general office and for the congressional delegation. So I believe in that focus. And again, you, the Republican Party showed we allow seats on the party from the um, conservative side, from the college Republicans, from the young Republicans. So we have been allowing that, those voices at the table in the Republican Party. You want the final word on that? The Rhode Island Political Cooperative, that's the progressive group. Matt Brown is one of three co-chairs of that, and I think he's the Jeanine only one. Jeanine Culkin, who used to be in the Senate. Yes, I think yeah. Maggie Kane as well. And, and Matt's not, I think he's the only person who's not a candidate mm -hmm. at this point. What's interesting to me about that project is, can they find a way to message on a consistent basis from Block Island through Boroughville? deliver whatever their message is of challenging the institutions in Rhode Island, progressive politics, whatever it is. Is there a way to communicate that to the average Rhode Islander? If they're able to, there's a model for Republicans, Libertarians, Independents to follow in the future. But you know what we also been seeing here in Rhode Island, that there are a number of Democrats, the way that their philosophy and the way they vote when they're um, officials, they're truly Republicans. Right. But because, you know, being the state of Rhode Island, they, have, they choose to put D after their name so they can get elected. So when you said about trying to get that cohesive message, the people in Burville think differently than the people in Providence. And that's been and, the problem with the speaker, right. too, though, because there's been that whole, with the abortion thing was, a, I think he handled that pretty well in saying, look, I, I disagree with this, but I'm going to let it go to the vote. And then they had issues in the Senate. So, I mean, Nick Mattiello could be considered a Republican in other parts of the country. At least a, a very moderate Republican. Yeah. Um, and there are many Republicans that, uh, that I've seen, not that they're in office now, that are more a moderate Democrat. Um, but Lisa's right in that the Democratic label bodes well for candidates throughout Rhode Island. It is really hard to get um, the people in Central Falls, um, Providence and Pawtucket, not to vote for a Democratic candidate, even if they happen to be more moderate or even more Republican, if they have that moniker, that label that says they're a Democrat. Even without the master lover. That's right. right. Tell me if you've heard this one before. So the state of Rhode Island thinks, hey, we're lagging behind in tax collections. Let's hire seven people and spend $900,000 and put them on the payroll, and we'll pull in millions of dollars. And they've pulled in $196,000. There's a larger discussion about the budget, but it's just like, what, what are we doing here, right? What was the thinking here? So I thought, is it you need to spend money to make money? Right. You know, so we need to hire that. And why is it always, let's put more people in on state. The and the state payroll to make this That'll happen. That'll be helpful. 
You know, so here's once again, somebody, whoever's doing projections for the state needs to get fired because they seem <laughs> to be consistently off. So they thought that they were going to bring in all these three, four million dollars, millions dollars, and they didn't even bring in probably enough to cover the people and the Not overhead it, yeah. or, or whatever. So what are we going to do? We're going to allow this to continue. They, I think they're trying to do this for the long haul. You know, you know, give us more time and we'll collect it. I don't see it happening. Yeah, the law. Uh, there are private agencies that do this. And, and are they pretty do, good at it. They're very, very <laughs> They'll good They'll find at your it. money. It doesn't take it very much to be entrepreneurial in this area uh, because there are companies that uh, specialize in that. And many universities and colleges do that for uh, students that are behind in their bills or who didn't pay their bills. After a couple of years, they, they, they reverted to a collection agency. And you collect... Uh, Maybe only 50 cents on the dollar, but you do it without uh, putting people on the payroll at the cost of $900,000 a year. Yeah, you ever move out of an apartment with like $117 left on your electric bill and five years later? I mean, They're who are those guys? Right. right. Yeah. Look, truck tolls, the numbers are down. I think that was this morning. It was Arlene Violet sitting here in April. It reminded me, budgets, it reminded all of us, budgets are about priorities, right? And th th there's something inappropriate, incorrect in the Rhode Island budget process. For some reason, we're left with gaps, and maybe it's just about being realistic. That may be part of it as well. Um, and this specific program, yeah, it just, it just didn't work out. It was The larger issue ineffective. on the budget, though, we're in relatively good times, right? And they're already talking about a $200, $200 million structural deficit. So what happens when the recession hits, right? It's going to be very difficult. Um, if you look at the budget estimates, Lisa was talking about a minute ago, Often what we have is in November, when they come out with their fall estimates, it always shows us having a, a deficit. I, I think for the last 15 or 20 years, it comes out almost religiously. And that's we, what the governor has to base her budget on. And, and they do that because they're looking at the revenue that they've received since July 1, the beginning of the fiscal year, up until November. They, they project on a more conservative basis. And then when it comes to May, when they do the second revenue projection, they're always rosier pictures, and they, they say we can fill this gap, we can do those kinds of things. And it just happens year after year after year, uh, and it, it's wrong. Um, yes, um, Arlene's right about it is priorities, uh, but it is also about managing the money while you're in office. You really have to do that, and there are places where we should be cutting. There are places where we should be modifying. And there's places where we should be increasing um, money and revenue, but it's it's... It's difficult for the average taxpayer to, to say, why are we at a $200 million deficit when we're in the good times? If we're, we're going to go into a recession. It may be another year, maybe two years down the road, but tax collections will be down, revenue will be down, and we're going to be looking at major cuts that we're going to have to uh, get to uh, get through the year. Uh, they should be uh, putting money aside. They should be balancing their budget now. If anything, this is the time to do it. And, you know, I think, again, just going back to my previous point, that we need to do a better job of trying to project actually the cost and how much we, we're going to have, um, going to need to have in terms of revenue. I was watching um, the governor. She was taping a, an, another news show. With the newsmakers. With the, the news and they were talking about DCYF. DCYF. Right? So once again, we have a state agency that said, okay, we're going to have more 
more families in need, so we need more money, and then they come back with their next projection, not continuing that level of need, thinking those families were going to go away. Then the governor was asked about the veterans home in Bristol, the new veterans home there, and they um, miscalculated how much money it was going to cost to clean it, because it's a bigger facility. So here, so they, mis um, they uh, didn't do that correctly. Then think about what we did about legalized gambling. Oh, we were going to get all this money in from you know the mobile um, gambling, millions of dollars. Then it was half of that, and then it was less than that. So it doesn't seem that we have the you know the right predictions going on to really be able to know how much money we need to. So you banking on the Patriots not to win the Super Bowl? Is that going to help the state this year? Because that was a big problem, and that but that was a blip, right? Right. Well, we'll find out maybe again this year. The sports betting aspect of this whole question is, or this whole problem is something that is, you know, th there's a societal element to it that we don't spend a lot of time talking about, but then there's just the numbers. I have no idea personally. I don't think anyone really knows how much this is going to explode, if it's going to be a phenomenon that we look back like pogs were in the 90s, where mobile sports betting is something that is brief, but it may turn into an industry that also the private sector finds a way to monetize out from under the state. I'm not sure, and I, I have no idea. I don't think anyone has a really clear picture of where we're going with that, and yet it's such a critical element of our budget. When you're doing budgeting and you've got these kinds of um, uncertain kinds of areas of, of sports betting, marijuana, et cetera, that's when you estimate conservatively. Yeah. You always put it low. And the so estimates have consistently been too high the last couple of years. Any business, right? in, in my business, I would look at the places that are unknown, the places that you want to put investments in, and I would make sure that I underestimate where I'm going to go with that. And I make sure that I then use that money if I happen to uh, reap a reward or, or benefit and the money comes in. And that's what you use to do special kinds of projects. The budget estimating is just not being done properly. And, and the in sports Island. betting is bailing out the, the problem, which has been the revenue of Twin River. That's kind that's of right. glossing over. That's a structural problem for the it, long run. It is. And, you know, we're talking $200 million. 200 million is a lot of money. So, I, you know, we always try to go with these one-offs. Oh, the Amazon tax, so that's going to come in and that's going to, you know, do this. The mobile gambling, oh, that's going to come in and go. What's the, what are they pulling out of their pocket this year that's going to be equal to 200 million? And isn't that almost amount that we're paying for the reduction of the gas, um, of the car tax? So, you yeah. know, right now, yeah. so when we're looking, that it's is a equal. very, very large Well, and number. you know what? That survived three budget cycles. Do you remember what the budget was when you were there in the late 80s? A couple billion, maybe? Three and a half. Yeah, three and a half, and we're at 10. At some point, I mean, at some point, it's got to stop. And somebody did a study that said every four years, so a, a governor's term, it's about another billion dollars. And that's unsustainable in the long run, right? I can't imagine how that could work out long term when we're not attracting industries of the future. We're not thinking creatively enough here to bring the outside world to Rhode Island and take Rhode Island to the outside world. It's, it's a major problem that how are we going to generate revenue to support increased another billion dollars in the budget in three years from now? I mean, that's, that doesn't seem sustainable. So quickly, legalized marijuana. Uh, I had read an uh, article uh, from The Globe that had said, uh, you know, it's been the year anniversary. Yeah. And some of what they weren't expecting, they're having problems with supply, not a surprise. People are still probably getting it easier from their dealer and a little bit cheaper. And so, you know, buyer beware, right, in Rhode Island? Yeah. So, um, again, we need to look at the other states that have legalized uh, marijuana to see, you know, what is the good practice practices, if there are, are any at all. 
But we also can see that there's a thriving black market for marijuana in all the states that have legalized marijuana. That's undercutting. That's right, the price. because when you want to spend three to three hundred to four hundred dollars versus half of that, right? So people are always going to go for the cheaper, so they don't want to pay for the regulations and taxes that are associated with it. So we really have to be long and hard. Is this something that we really want to do? And the one point I want to make, as you know, Massachusetts is going to ban flavored um, vaping. vaping, and of course the governor has put a hold on it. If there's such concern for young people with vaping, why isn't there the same concern about legal Marijuana. Mm, that's a good point. Marijuana? Yeah. <laughs> Just look at Colorado. You've got examples that you can. Yeah, what use. about Colorado? Um, they've done well, but their estimates uh, with regard to revenue from the taxation has been uh, very low. The black market, as you talked about, is there. Uh, they have not been re, uh, really, uh, the supply hasn't been too bad, uh, but. Uh, the sin tax, as we used to call them, whether it be on alcohol, whether it be on tobacco, whether it be on marijuana, whether it be on sports betting, they just don't bring in the estimated revenue traditionally that people have estimated. It's just wrong. All right. We've got a lot of national stuff to get to, but let's do outrageous first. Bill, what do you have this week? Well, I actually have a kudo. Uh, General Treasurer Seth Magaziner released some posters that encourage Rhode Islanders to buy Rhode Island bonds. Now, whether you're into that program or not, I really enjoyed the way that this was released. He commissioned some local artists to create some sort of like works progress administration type posters. They're unique. They represent different aspects of the state. I put them up on my Instagram and got a lot of great response from younger people. Just creative ways of messaging and interacting with the state's artistic community and um, you know, trying to put Rhode Island first in terms of content. Better than cooler and warmer. A little bit better than cooler and warmer. <laughs> Bob, what do you have? Uh, kind of a kudo and also a uh, outrage. Um, uh, Prince Andrew, um, mm. outrageous uh, that he can have the audacity to say that he didn't do anything wrong. Uh, it's outrageous that the elite and the wealthy uh, can go around and uh, partake in sex trafficking and do those kinds of things that really are not only despicable, but they're illegal and they, they should have repercussions uh, because of that. Kudo because the Queen Elizabeth has cut him off as of yesterday with regard to salary, with regard to position, and, and uh, the whole thing about the uh, royal family. They should go even further, but I give her kudos for having the, the guts uh, to do that publicly. Uh, and he should be not just simply chastised, he should be brought before the law and be, uh, I think, convicted of a crime. He's been banished to the royal man cave. Yeah. <laughs> we might not see him for a while. Lisa, what do you have? Um, I, I have a new category, if I could just for today. Sure. Instead of a kudos or an outrage, I have an oops. <laughs> okay, so, um, it could be a new category <laughs> for us. So I was on my e-edition uh, reading the um, Providence Journal this week on, on Wednesday, and my eye just kind of went to the corrections column, which always can be interesting. So I'm reading the corrections, and the first one was, Frank Hansen's sister, Helen, is alive and living in Warwick. And I'm thinking, <laughs> why is this a correction? So then I went back. So Sunday, there was this long... and she when I bumped off? Well, what happened was, it, it was in Sunday's paper, front page, long story, and it was a pretty well-written story about um, a 15-year-old who um, had a 15-year-old um, friend who disappeared, and they never could find him. So, you know, you're reading the story, and in the story, it says, sadly, his parents and older sister Helen all died without learning the facts of their son and brother. <laughs> She's still alive. You know? And then I'm reading the correction, and then, no, she is alive and well. So one of those oops 
I'm sure we can. Maybe we can make that a new category. <laughs> uh, we have about five minutes left. Let's talk about impeachment. A big flurry of witnesses this week. The uh, testimony's wrapped up, so we'll see where it goes. It'll be now in the speaker's hands. Uh, we've talked with you a lot about this over as it's kind of evolved. What are you thinking at this point? Well, I think there's a lot of evidence that they've got. I mean, it's pretty um, uh, obvious that there was a quid pro quo. Uh, there was uh, attempted bribery. Uh, there was all those kinds of things. Uh, they will come out with a report uh, that will endorse impeachment. Uh, eventually, what will happen is over the next month, they will draw up articles of impeachment. They'll send it to the House Judiciary Committee in December. Uh, the Judiciary Committee will come out with a report, and probably by the end of December, maybe the first week of January, they'll vote yes, uh, and they'll impeach him. It'll go over the Senate, and in a matter of about two or three weeks in January, it will fail to get a, a conviction of two-thirds of the Senate. Um, what will happen then is actually Trump's ratings will go up, uh, just as Bill Clinton's ratings went up uh, during his impeachment. And it may actually secure the re-election of Donald Trump as a result of that. I think the greater issue is who do they have to put up against them right now? Because Joe Biden's stumbling a little bit. You have everybody's coming out of the woodwork. Let me run now. But they're late to the game, right? Yeah. So um, I've never thought that the impeachment, just on one aspect, is good for the Democrats because no, all not. the all the candidates who are trying to run for president are trying to get attention. So beyond the debate that maybe a few people watched the other night, you know, it's been hard for them to break out. Um, and six of them might be sitting in the Senate come yeah. January because they're senators, that, right? That's right, with a trial. And then how is this, you know, is your timeline, you know, I'm trying to figure out how the timeline is going to play. We know Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary or early February was just weeks away from right now. So how will the impeachment hearings, you know, as they continue going forward, impact the primaries too? So I think the Democrats have to be thinking that Donald Trump will still be on the ballot in November, and who is the best candidate to defeat him. So that's what we've been waiting to see for months now. But one of the things is that if, and I believe he truly has committed an impeachable offense, he's done something wrong that it should be punishable. How do you punish him? Do you do it simply through impeachment? I say what you do is you do it through the ballot box. Don't impeach him. Bring out all the evidence, bring out all that information, and then let the election go forward and beat him at the ballot box. Do you think Nancy you can Pelosi might actually way. do that, say, okay, we've heard enough, let's go to November? Could she do that? She could do that. They could say, we've heard enough, uh, um, and do not uh, go forward. Right, with so the you argument. make your decision based on what we've heard. Yeah, and that's been something that you've been the leading voice, at least in Rhode Island, on that particular perspective, for, and from my purview. And it's, it's very true that Democrats are now furthering the divide if they're, you know, absolutely. expanding. You're right. You're absolutely right. My question is, I mean, as you mentioned, we're seeing this evidence laid out. And it is clear that there was a quid pro quo. And I also agree that there was an impeachable offense. My question is more so, do the American people care? What is Trump? What has today's media landscape? What has that done to the average voter? Does anyone suppose, you, you know, someone says, you know, I know in my heart of hearts that this is an impeachable offense, but He's still my guy. Well, because isn't it also the same? Trump's got a great economy going. We'll see what happens over the next year. The Dow, the Dow is at an all-time high. Bill Clinton was was a generally popular president and also had a pretty good economy going for him, too. So people said, and you know what, did. keep the guy. He did it, but whatever. And they did, and he, he did very well. And what was his offense? He lied about an extramarital affair. That's not an impeachable offense in my mind. Right. There for the grace of God go a lot of the congressmen and senators. Right? Many, including that Speaker of the House at that time. She's going to take issue with that. He lied to the American people. 
He did. And he lied under oath. And he's president of the United States. And we well, have to... He lied about an, uh, uh, an extramarital affair. I agree. I agree that he, it was an offense that was illegal uh, with regard to his perjury. That was wrong. But you don't remove him for that. I do not think that if, with regard to Trump, if we are going to remove him, if you're going to do it, do it through the ballot box now. Because it's, if this was two years ago, different story. Yeah. You, in yeah. 11 months, you're going to elect a you new president. Yeah, and I fully agree with that. I do believe let the voters vote in November. They voted four years ago. They wanted Donald Trump. Let the voters come back and do it. But I do see the House going forward with article, articles of impeachment. I don't see how that cannot happen. And I do see the Senate not finding him guilty. So as predicted, I think that's what's going to happen. Ten seconds. He is guilty of an impeachable offense. Go to the ballot box, remove him. Remember, in 2016, the people didn't elect him, the Electoral College. He lost a popular vote. All right. To be continued, folks, thank you for joining us. It's uh, always lively. Lisa and Bill and Bob, thank you so much. And if you don't catch us Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, we can uh, all of our editions uh, are on uh, Facebook and YouTube, and you can catch us wherever you get your favorite podcast. Join us back here next week as we have special programming during Thanksgiving week. We'll tell you what that is next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great weekend, everybody. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.